This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive Insurance, where drivers who switch could save hundreds on car insurance. Get your quote at Progressive.com today. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Major funding for The Pulse is provided by a leadership gift from the Sutherland Fund. The Sutherlands support WHYY and its commitment to the production of programs that improve our quality of life. New York Times tech reporter Kashmir Hill was traveling in Switzerland in November of 2019 when she got an email. It came in around midnight. I was seven months pregnant, so I was on my way to bed after a long day. But when I read what was in the email, I was very alert, and I actually immediately called the tipster to talk about it. It was about a tech company Kashmir had never heard of, Clearview AI. That claimed that it had scraped billions of photos from the internet and social media sites without people's consent that was able to identify people with something like 99% accuracy. And not only that, the email suggested that police departments all over the U.S. were already using this facial recognition software to track down suspects. I'm Mike and Scott, and this is a podcast extra from The Pulse. The late-night tip sent Kashmir on a chase to find out who was behind this mysterious tech company and who was already using the software. She's written a book about her quest called Your Face Belongs to Us. Did you believe this claim that it would be almost 99% accurate? Because it didn't seem like at that time in 2019 that face recognition was that far along. Yeah, I mean, my understanding of facial recognition technology up until then was that it was pretty flawed, that it didn't really work that well, that it had a lot of problems with bias and didn't work as well on um, people with darker skin tones that didn't work as well on like women, the men that basically it worked best on white men. And then, you know, it had kind of been rolled out over the years and always found to be a bit lacking. Like it was good on our cell phones for unlocking them, but that uh, as a tool for kind of finding out the identity of a face in the crowd, it didn't work that well. So I was I was pretty skeptical. Yeah, I remember watching an episode of House of Cards, and there was this scene where they find this young woman who had been trying to hide, and, you know, bad forces want to get to her, and then they just find her through facial recognition in some remote part of the country. And I remember thinking, like, oh, come on. <laughs> like, <laughs> nobody can do that. <laughs> Right. It seemed like something from science fiction. Everyone always thinks of the movie Minority Report yes. and, you know, Tom Cruise running through the mall and ads calling out his name. But now Kashmir was learning that not only did this company's facial recognition seem to work really well, the company was also being represented by a high-profile lawyer, Paul Clement. He had been the Solicitor General of the U.S. under President George W. Bush. The tipster provided Kashmir with a memo written by Clement to be distributed to police departments. 
He's basically trying to tell police officers, I know this technology is astounding and kind of frightening and seems like it might be illegal, but don't worry. You won't be, you know, uh, violating the Constitution or breaking state laws by using this tool. And that that hasn't turned out to be entirely true. Kashmir was completely hooked by this story. She had to find out what was going on with this facial recognition software. The company's website looked very basic. It had almost no information. Her emails to them went unanswered. So next, she went to their New York City address. But the building did not exist. There was nothing there. And so that was just a huge red flag for me. There's this company selling this sounds almost like a magical technology, very radical, and it seems to have a, a fake address on its website. I just thought, wow, are they are they selling kind of tech snake oil to, to police departments? She pulled on any thread she could find. She looked for people who had invested in Clearview AI, and she found two. One was one I'd never heard of before, but the other was Peter Thiel. Hmm. So... <laughs> Peter Thiel is a name I knew very well, a very famous venture capitalist, one of the co-founders of PayPal, made tons of money investing in Facebook in its early days, you know, created the the company Palantir. So I reached out to him through a spokesperson, and the spokesperson said, hmm, you know, it doesn't, doesn't sound familiar, I'll get back to you, and then never heard from him again. She was hitting dead ends at every turn. You eventually found a detective in Florida who was using the software, and he seemed very excited to talk to you about it. So (laughs) what did you learn from him? Yes, when the company itself wouldn't kind of respond to any of my outreach, I reached out to a number of police departments that I determined were using the technology, mainly because I was seeing it starting to show up on, on budgets. And so one of them was the Gainesville Police Department. And a detective there called me back right away. His name was Nick Ferrara, and he was super excited to talk about Clearview AI. He said, it's incredible. It works like nothing I've used before. He was a financial crimes detective, and he said he had this pile of kind of known fraudsters. Their photos had been taken while they were at an ATM or at a bank counter, and he'd run them through the state facial recognition system which essentially searched through kind of mugshots and driver's license photos and gotten no hits. But then he ran their photos through Clearview AI, and he said that he was getting hit after hit after hit, giving him leads in these cases he thought were were basically dead ends. And he said it worked, you know, even when people were looking away from the camera, even if they had a hat on. He said it was incredible. I just I remember he said, I'd be their spokesperson if they wanted me to. Kashmir wanted to see the software in action. So the detective told her to send him a few pictures of herself, and he would run them through the program. And so I sent him a few photos, and then he stopped responding to me. I found another officer in Texas who also said he really liked the app, that it worked super well. He said, oh, yeah, I'll run your photo, show you the results. He ran my photo and said, you don't have any results, which was really strange because I have my photos on the Internet a lot. And he said, yeah, you know, when I Google your name, you have a lot of photos. Maybe they're servers down. 
And then he stopped responding to me. And so then I finally recruit this officer to kind of help me look into Clearview. And he went to the website, signed up for the app. Clearview at the time was giving out free trials to police officers. And he starts using it. He says it works really well. And he ran his own photo. And he's been pretty careful about not putting his image on the internet um, because of the work he does. And so he ran his own photo and was very surprised when there was a result. And it took him to, when you use Clearview, it'll it'll show you other places where your, your face has appeared with a link to where they appear. And so this was a Twitter photo. And he was actually in the background of someone else's photo with his name tag. And so he would have been identifiable. And he he was really shocked and he immediately thought, wow, this is going to be a game changer for law enforcement, but this is going to make it very hard for undercover officers. And then he volunteered to run my photo. I told him, you know, in the past it didn't have any results. And he ran my photo and he said, yeah, you don't have any results. That's really strange. And then a couple of minutes later, he said he got a call from an unknown number, picks up, and it's somebody who says they're with Clearview AI tech support. And they have some questions for him. And they said, did you run the photo of this New York Times reporter, Kashmir Hill? And he kind of, he was a bit cagey, kept his cards to his chest. And he said, oh, how would I know a New York Times reporter? And they said, well, you're not supposed to be running reporters' photos through the app. That's a violation of our policies. And they deactivated his account. And then he called me and told me, and I was like, oh, my God, this is why the other two officers stopped talking to me. This company has been tracking tracking my face, and it must have some kind of alert, and they know when somebody uploads my face. They've blocked it from having results, which was alarming because it made me realize that not only could they see everyone who police officers were looking for, they controlled the ability of whether those people could be found. That's that's a lot to digest as you were digging into this story, right? It was. It was. It was one of the more alarming moments I've had as a reporter. Um, yeah, I just, I, I never really had that experience before of this company doesn't want to talk to me. They're, you know, they're clearly avoiding me and yet they're watching me. She finally made a breakthrough when she paid a visit to an investment firm that had put money into Clearview AI. They were in Bronxville, a suburb of New York City. Kashmir took the train from Manhattan. She knocked on the door. No answer. A neighbor and a delivery guy said they had never seen anybody in that office. But just as she was about to leave... Two men in expensive-looking clothes walked up the stairs. They casually said hello. I kind of opened my arms and I said, I'm the New York Times reporter who's been trying to get in touch with you. I'm Kashmir Hill. And their faces both fell. And one of them... (laughs) (laughs) They were like, oh, no. (laughs) One of them who turned out to be the firm's founder, uh, David Scalzo, said, well, we're not supposed to talk to you. Clearview AI's lawyer said, we're not allowed to talk to you. And as I mentioned before, I was was pretty pregnant at this point. And so I kind of, I was wearing a, a winter coat and I just kind of opened it up to just show, you know, my pregnant belly. And I was like, oh, you know, I came all this way. And uh, David Scalzo was very kind. He said, okay, um, uh, why don't you come in and have some water and we can just talk off the record. 
And so we went in, we sat down, and I kind of, I laid out for them the reporting I had done at that point. And the fact that I talked to police officers, I knew how well this app worked according to them, and that the company not responding to me looked bad. And they they agreed and they said, okay, well, we love this app. We think it's a great investment. We think that the same way you Google someone today, you're going to clear view them in the future. Everyone's going to do this and look up people's faces. And and they started finally answering my questions. And, and, and they said, it, you know, the app was spreading like wildfire through law enforcement, that the company didn't just want to sell to police, that it hoped to sell this app one day to hotels, to grocery stores to to everybody that they hoped that everybody in the world would have would have the Clearview app on their phone and they finally told me who was behind the company and they said there was basically this tech mastermind this young guy descended from Vietnamese royalty and his name was Juan Tan Tat That's New York Times tech reporter Kashmir Hill. Her new book is called Your Face Belongs to Us, a secretive startup's quest to end privacy as we know it. Coming up, who is the tech mastermind behind Clearview AI? I remember I found one photo of him. He had uploaded some of his recordings of himself playing guitar to Spotify. And his cover image was him shirtless, lighting a cigarette and covered in what looked like blood just dripping down his body. So I wasn't sure what to expect. That's still to come. Support for this NPR podcast and the following message come from Amgen, a biotechnology pioneer leading the fight against the world's toughest diseases such as cancer, heart disease, asthma, and osteoporosis. In a new era of human health, Amgen continues to accelerate the pace of change, operating sustainably and drawing upon deep knowledge of science to push beyond what's known today. With each decade, they reliably deliver powerful new therapies to patients. Learn more at Amgen.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit their website to get a quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, and their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. Then, just choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Progressive, and it's Name Your Price Tool. Say how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show coverage options within your budget. Visit Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. I'm Mike and Scott. This is a podcast extra from The Pulse. My guest is New York Times tech reporter Kashmir Hill. Her new book is called Your Face Belongs to Us. It's about Clearview AI, a secretive tech company that scraped billions of images from the internet to develop a face recognition app that they distributed to police departments across the country. Let's talk about the person in the center of this company, Wonton Tat. Who is he? What's his background? So Wonton Tat grew up in Australia. He's one of those kids who had access to a computer at an early age, you know, three or four years old, 
and loved it. He loved playing on his father's computer from an early age thought, I, I, wanted, I want to do this and I want to play guitar. And so that's what he's kind of been doing his whole life. When he was a teenager, he said he would like to skip school sometimes and he would just watch these free videos from MIT about how to code. Uh, and yeah, just kind of a self-taught coder. Uh, went to college to study computer science and got bored with what his professors had to offer. Started reading Hacker News online and getting really excited about the idea of doing a startup and being an entrepreneur. And he got an invitation from an investor in San Francisco to move there and try his hand at, you know, Silicon Valley startup life. And so he bought a ticket. and moved halfway around the world at 19 years old. This was in 2007. And so he lands in San Francisco, starts couch surfing and making apps for Facebook because it had just opened itself up to third-party developers. And he's making these kind of silly quizzes. He would go on to make iPhone games and just kind of what I would consider stupid apps. One was Later, when he got into kind of conservative circles, he made an app called Trump Hair, and it would just add Trump's hair to, you know, the faces in the photo. Yeah, great way to collect faces, by the way. Yeah, true. (laughs) I want to talk about an early kind of blip in his resume, so to speak, which was something called Video. What was that and what happened with that? So Video was it was really like a YouTube clone. It was a place where you could watch videos and share them with your friends. And he really wanted to go viral. And in his attempt to do that, he got in a lot of trouble because you would have to sign in to Video with your instant messaging credentials, like your Google chat handle. And you know, you would sign in to watch a video. It would grab your Google credentials and then use them to send messages to all of your friends saying, hey, check out video with a link or check out this video on video with a link. And then those people would click the link and then they would have to sign in with their Google chat credentials. And then it would do that to all of their friends. So this just started it started spreading wildly across the internet. And everyone was like, oh my gosh, I've been hacked. This 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 video, which sounded, I mean, it sounded like a porn site to me, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> has taken over <laughs> my account. It's sending messages to all my friends. And it got labeled a phishing scam. Huantan Tat's internet service provider dropped him. You know, his various online accounts got suspended. And there was a lot of news coverage, particularly an article in Valleywag, which was an outpost of Gawker for the tech industry, that said, you know, is this hacker the mastermind behind the worm? It was not a very flattering article, and it kind of became the first thing that came up in his Google results for years to come. And it sounds like with Clearview AI, he really flew under the radar so he must have learned a lesson from that very public <laughs> public experience of, of trying something new with video. Yeah, that's what those invest the, the investor David Scalzo told me. He said, you know, Juan's got some gawker history that he doesn't want to come up. And that's part of why, you know, it's so hard to find information about the people behind this. 
But Kashmir kept digging and digging. Eventually, when the people at Clearview AI realized she wasn't going to go away, she was going to write about this one way or another, they hired a crisis communication expert, and they agreed to allow Kashmir to interview the mysterious developer at the center of the company. When you describe Juan Tantat in the book, it's almost like, a really cheesy character out of a movie, you know, like, <laughs> because he's <laughs> truth this, is stranger than fiction. <laughs> yeah, so true. But he's this really tall guy who comes to a conference in a white fur coat with a MAGA hat. He has long flowing hair. He wears paisley suits. So when you got to meet him, what was he like? Yeah, my experience of him online, He's he's very flamboyant. And yes, loves these colorful clothes. I remember I found one photo of him. He had uploaded some of his recordings of himself playing guitar to Spotify. And his cover image was him shirtless, lighting a cigarette and covered in what looked like blood just dripping down his body. So I wasn't sure what to expect when I met him. But I was shocked when I saw him because he was wearing a relatively normal blue suit with just a white shirt. He was wearing glasses, which I'd never seen before, and he just looked very much the security startup CEO. So he'd really toned down his look for this meeting with a New York Times reporter. And when you ask him, you know, why do you want to make this software? What do you think is the benefit for humanity? Not that all people necessarily think about that, but what's his answer? During that first meeting that I had with him, and this is, you know, before I'd done the years of research on the book and kind of found out the full story of of how the company came to be what it was, he was really focused on its use for police work and security. And he said, you know, we made this app to find bad guys. And, you know, he said he, he recognized the kind of radical nature of an app that can find anybody's face and and unmask them. And he said, you know, that's why we decided to sell this to police, because we want this app used to find pedophiles, not to be used by pedophiles to find out the identity of children. When did you get a sense of how far this app had already been spread? Like, you you knew that police were using it, but as you did these interviews, did you learn more and more in terms of, like, <laughs> this cat already being way out of the bag? The general public was really surprised when Clearview AI's existence was exposed. And experts I talked to were really surprised. I have been following facial recognition technology for a while because I write about privacy and technology. And I remember a decade earlier, a whole bunch of politicians and regulators and tech companies had come together for this conference in D.C. And everyone said, "Okay, this is the one thing we should never do with this technology. We should never build a big database that can identify anyone. And so it was really shocking. But then as I start doing all of this digging on the company, I find out that a a very elite group of people knew about its existence and were using it, essentially billionaires and investors that the company had approached to try to get funding. And so it wasn't just Peter Thiel. It was kind of well-known venture capital firms in San Francisco, Sequoia Capital, um, uh, a billionaire in New York uh, named John Katsimatidis, who's run for mayor before, owns Cristetes Supermarkets. He had actually tried out 
the technology in his stores to catch shoplifters. He kind of memorably told me they had a real problem because people kept stealing haagen ice cream. <laughs> and then he also uh, had had the Clearview AI app on his phone, and he said he was telling me about how it had come in useful because he was having dinner one night at an Italian restaurant, and his daughter walked in with a guy on her arm, and he wanted to know who this guy was. And so he sent a waiter over to take a picture of them and then ran the guy's photo through Clearview AI and found out he was a venture capitalist from San Francisco. And, you know, he approved and sent a text to his daughter. I thought I thought the guy was going to be in Hagen Dust Thief. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Okay. Different ending. Okay. <laughs> I was totally waiting for that. <laughs> uh, if only. Maybe he did. Who knows? <laughs> It made me think of that William Gibson quote, the great, the great science fiction writer. Um, he said that you know the the future is already here; it's just unevenly distributed. And it was true. All these kind of law enforcement and then basically moneyed individuals had had access to this superpower really early on. And what were your readers' reactions to learning that law enforcement was already actively using this tool? People were very upset when that first story came out in the New York Times about the idea that their yeah their photos had been collected from the internet without their consent. At that time, Clearview AI had something like a billion photos of faces. The database is now 30 billion faces strong. And yeah, people were really upset. That's New York Times tech reporter Kashmir Hill. Her new book is called Your Face Belongs to Us, a secretive startup's quest to end privacy as we know it. Coming up, we'll find out how this app is already being used and in some cases, how it has gone very wrong. One day he's at work and he gets a call from the police saying that he needs to come to the station and turn himself in. That's still to come. This message comes from NPR sponsor Noom. Noom understands that not everyone is starting from the same place and takes that into account. With their first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, you can find a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. This message comes from NPR sponsor, REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing. Visit your local REI Co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways to opt outside. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Bluehost. Try Bluehost Cloud, the hosting plan made for WordPress creators by WordPress experts. With 100% uptime, fast load times, and 24-7 support, your sites can handle high-traffic spikes. Visit Bluehost.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sell without needing to code or design. Just bring your best ideas and Shopify will help you open up shop. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash NPR. 
This is a podcast extra from The Pulse. I'm Mike and Scott. My guest is New York Times tech reporter Kashmir Hill. Her new book is Your Face Belongs to Us. It's about a secretive tech company that scraped billions of photos from the Internet to create a very powerful facial recognition tool, which is already being used by police departments. Talk about the case of Robert Julian Borshak Williams, which illustrates basically everything that could go wrong with technology like this. So Robert Williams is a suburban dad. He lives outside of Detroit. He's got two young daughters, lives in a nice house, has a has a full-time job. One day he's at work and he gets a call from the police saying that he needs to come to the station and turn himself in. And so he thought it was a friend pranking him. But when he gets home, he pulls into his driveway. He's got dinner for his family. And a police car pulls in behind him, blocks him in. These two police officers kind of rush up to him, handcuff him, and tell him he's under arrest for larceny and shoplifting. And he gets arrested in front of his two young daughters. His wife is is horrified. She doesn't know what's going on. The neighbors might be looking. And he, he gets taken to jail held there overnight, and it turns out that he was arrested for the crime of looking like someone else. And how did that happen? How did it, who did they think he was? He was arrested because a man that looked like him, according to a facial recognition system and a facial examiner with, with, the, with the police, a man who looked like him had stolen five watches from a Shinola store in downtown Detroit. And the police, in trying to identify this man, had run his face through a state facial recognition system. And the system listed Robert Williams as, I believe, it was his, his driver's license photo was the ninth match out of hundreds of matches. And the, the human uh, facial examiner thought it was the best match. And so she sent it to the detective on the case. It would have been in the form of a, a facial recognition report. And so when police get a match like that, they're supposed to look for more evidence that, that you know, this might be the culprit. In this case, they just did a six-pack photo lineup where they took Robert's face and the faces of five other people and showed it to um, a security analyst who basically had watched the tape. Uh, she hadn't even been there in person. She watched the tape. And she said, yeah, that that guy looks the most like the guy on tape stealing the watches. And that is essentially why, why Robert Williams was not just arrested, but charged with the crime. And he had to hire a defense attorney until eventually prosecutors realized the mistake and, and dropped the case. You also visited a real-time crime center at the Miami Police Department. What did you see and learn there? I went down to Miami because uh, the person who runs that real-time crime center said, you know, we're using this technology correctly, and we want to invite you inside and kind of see all the surveillance technologies we're using and how they help policing and you know, there is a right way and a wrong way to use this technology, and we're trying to do it the right way down in um, the right way here in Miami. And so I went, I spent um, many, many hours in the real-time crime center, and it was interesting. They had all kinds of different 
it was kind of like the nerve center and all this information is is coming in from around the city. They had something called Shot Spotter that sends an alert every time it detects a gunshot. They had cameras that were scanning license plates. They did have this access to Clearview. They didn't actually use it that often in the the days that I was there, but they said it's really useful. And I actually saw a kind of crime happen in real time. Uh, It was a couple of guys who were in a grocery store parking lot and got robbed. Somebody took their money and I think an expensive necklace that one of them was wearing. And the whole thing was caught on video. And what was so interesting is there was a surveillance camera pointing at them, but the footage was so grainy that you couldn't see the face well enough to run a facial recognition search on it, even as the technology has gotten so much more accurate. If you have a bad photo, it's not going to identify the face. And so the technology was actually useless in that case. It, it didn't actually give them any leads. And so I was struck by the fact that, you know, we we kind of have all the building blocks for a surveillance state, but they're not quite there yet. We haven't finished building it. And so I think we have, we can still decide whether we want to build that surveillance state or not. The other thing that that I learned when I was there is that the person who ran the center, Armando Aguilar is his name, he said, you know, I actually think that some of my officers have gotten too dependent on this technology and they think that they can solve crimes just sitting at their desk. And it's still important that they go out there and they talk to people and they do interviews. And so he was saying, I love this technology. It's really useful, but we can't get too dependent on it. Talk a bit about what all of this might mean, especially to our right to privacy, which, you know, has has famously been described as basically the right to be left alone. What does all of this mean? Well, when I first heard about Clearview AI, I thought that what they had done was a technological breakthrough, you know, that they had developed the best version of the facial recognition algorithm. But what I've come to learn since then is that this power had actually been developed earlier on by other technology companies. Facebook and Google had both basically internally developed this tool, the ability to you know, Google a face, the ability to take a photo of somebody and figure out who they are. And both of them had held it back. And these are companies that are not known necessarily for being super privacy protective. But they both decided this is too risky a technology to make publicly available. And so they sat on it. What Clearview had done was really an ethical breakthrough. They'd been willing to do something that others hadn't. And, you know, this kind of ragtag group, I mean, they're they're smart people. They're not super geniuses. Other people can build a similar technology, and they have. There are other public face search engines now that anyone can use, and it will do this. You upload a face, and it'll pull up other photos of that person online. And that really changes what it means to kind of navigate the world. If, you know, this doesn't change, if we don't kind of claw back this technology, it will mean that anytime you're moving in public, someone with this power, with an app like this, can take a photo of you and know who you are. And so it means that that kind of, you know, sensitive conversation that you're quietly having over 
dinner, assuming that anyone around you isn't going to know who you are, that changes. You know, if somebody overhears what you're saying and they're curious, they could take your photo, find out who you are, now understand the context of what happened, or you're on the subway and you're, you bump into somebody or you're rude to somebody, you're having a bad day, they could take your picture and know who you are, maybe go write nasty things about you online. It, it, it just means that people have much more information about you. Yeah, and you combine that with cameras everywhere. I remember several years ago there was a murder case in Philadelphia where then through street camera surveillance and ring cameras, they basically tracked down who the person was who killed the victim, which, you know, that's great that they caught the person, but it made me realize for the first time that we pretty much have like seamless camera surveillance in the entire city where I live. And I remember that being like a really chilling moment in my life where I thought, wow, everywhere I go, pretty much I'm on camera. Yeah, these technologies are all around us, right? Like most of us probably pass dozens, if not hundreds of cameras every day. And with the power of artificial intelligence, the amount of surveillance that we would be regularly subjected to could be very extreme. Um, And right now, these systems are not really linked together. Like we don't have facial recognition technology running on all cameras all the time, at least not here in the United States. But activists are very concerned that something like that could be turned on. And yeah, it would be helpful when we're looking for fugitives, but it also could be chilling in terms of we're all easily tracked all the time. Is there any way... I can protect myself from this. I mean, obviously, my face is already, like, on the Internet. You know, I've been on Facebook, I'm on Instagram, blah, blah, blah. So I've lost that battle. But if I decided today I no longer want to be visible, can I even do that? Well, this advice this advice may be pretty counterintuitive. But because these face recognition apps are already out there, these face search apps are out there, I think it could be a good idea to use them while they're publicly available and see what is out there for you. Right now, knowing that that is findable, you might want to know what's findable for yourself. And so I actually did this with my colleagues at the Times. Um, One of the the public face search engines is called PimEyes. And so I ran their photos with their consent. And I remember one of my colleagues found this kind of photo of her where she's kind of cry laughing because she had just been proposed to. And she didn't like this photo of herself, but the photographer apparently really liked it because he put it on his Yelp page. And she's like, what? Why, you know, why is this photo on the public internet? More extreme version of that playing out right now in Virginia. One of the political candidates in the local race there has been tied to online sex videos that she made at some point in the past not tied to her real name at all, but they were dug up. We don't know how they are found, but it could have been in one of these face searches. So I think at this point, one thing you can do is figure out, gosh, you know, what is in my my face footprint, if you will. But in the future, if I don't want to be detected, I would have to wear a full face mask everywhere I go. Yeah, probably a ski mask. <laughs> ski mask. <laughs> ski mask should probably work. Um, just a face mask might not be enough. Uh, sunglasses aren't going to be enough. 
What has happened in terms of Clearview AI and some of the legislative efforts to rein in this technology since you wrote the book, since it went to print, so to speak? At the federal level, nothing has really happened so far. There is right now a lot of thinking around what do we do about AI, particularly inspired by ChatGPT. Are we okay with these companies just scraping all of the information off of the web to train their products and to use? It's it's some of the same questions. They're, they're not answered yet. Outside of the U.S., there has been a huge reaction to Clearview AI. A number of privacy regulators around the world investigated the company and said that what it did was illegal, that it violated their privacy laws, that you can't just collect people's photos without their consent and put it in this big facial recognition database. Several of them find the company, finds that the company has appealed and not paid. And, you know, Clearview AI has been instructed by the privacy regulators to delete their citizens' faces from the database, which hasn't happened yet. But it has caused Clearview AI to, to really stop doing business in those countries. What do you want readers to take away from the book? You know, it's a great, it's a detective story to some extent. It's, it's, it's a thriller. But then it's also real, unfortunately. So, so what do you want us to walk away with? Yeah, I do hope in part it's just a great story to read to kind of yeah, see how this, 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 this ragtag group came up with this completely shocking and radical technology. I think seeing how they put it together is just an alarming tale about what AI is making possible. It's just it's just it's so much easier to make these really groundbreaking products now because of the kind of open source nature of technology. But beyond that, one I do think it's still possible to make rules and laws to rein in this technology. And so I thought, particularly this moment, it's important to have this story out there and hopefully get lawmakers to to act and consider this as they make, eventually, I hope, laws around artificial intelligence. But then for individual users, just making sure that they're aware of what's happening in the world and and do, as, as you were asking earlier, like, what do I do about this technology? So understanding that it is going to be possible to find your face on the internet and that you should take that into account as you make decisions. I, I think about this a lot with really the rise of online sex work, for example, during the pandemic, people creating OnlyFans accounts and maybe thinking, well, my name's not on this. No one will be able to tie it back to me. And that, frankly, is not the case. You know, anything with your face on it, if we continue to have companies like Clearview AI, like PimEyes, that scrape the internet and make our faces findable, I just want people to know that and be prepared so that they make wise decisions about what they put online. That's New York Times tech reporter Kashmir Hill. Her new book is called Your Face Belongs to Us, a secretive startup's quest to end privacy as we know it. Be sure to follow The Pulse to catch our weekly episodes and podcast extras. This conversation was edited by Alan Yub, Lindsay Lazarski, and Nicole Curry. Our engineer is Charlie Kyer. I'm Mike and Scott. Thank you for listening. 
Major funding for The Pulse is provided by a leadership gift from the Sutherland family. The Sutherlands support WHYY and its commitment to the production of programs that improve our quality of life. The Commonwealth Fund supports The Pulse and reporting on health equity. The Commonwealth Fund, affordable, quality health care for everyone. Behavioral health reporting on The Pulse is supported by the Thomas Scattergood Behavioral Health Foundation, an organization that is committed to thinking, doing, and supporting innovative approaches in integrated healthcare. WHYY's health and science reporting is supported by a generous grant from Public Health Management Corporation's Public Health Fund. PHMC gladly supports WHYY and its commitment to the production of services that improve our quality of life. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Delta Airlines. When you think about it, half the trips the world takes are trips home. And those at Delta are travelers just like you. That's why they try to make you feel at home long before you even get there. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Capella University. With Capella's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. On Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, we have very important people on our show and then ask them about very unimportant things. Here's U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen. Uh, We are also reliably informed that among your enthusiasms, in addition to macroeconomic policy, is mobile games. Uh, There is some truth in that. There's some truth in that. Join us for the NPR podcast that considers all the other things. That's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me.